Good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. And over the last few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series that we are calling Big Questions, where we look at some of the biggest questions that are confronting Christians today. And it's not like you can avoid these questions. It's not like we can hide our faces from these questions. These questions are being brought up to Christians again and again. So it's important that Christians know how to answer these questions and how to respond. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the question, what does the Bible say about gender and sexuality? First things first, I think that it's really important that we talk about biblical authority on this matter. Because if you don't believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority for Christians, let's just be honest, you can really believe whatever you want. So many of the big questions that we've been addressing in this series actually have bigger issues at stake. And I believe that the two bigger issues that underlie so many of our questions are the issues of authority and autonomy. What is my highest authority? Do I get to decide what's right and what's wrong? Or is there an unchanging, objective standard that lies outside of me that all my conduct is measured against? Christians believe that our highest authority is the Bible, the Word of God. And all other authorities get their authority from God and the truths that are revealed in the Bible. This is why here at the Village Church, our number one value is biblical authority. That's why the very first question we addressed in this big question series was the question of biblical reliability. Because the Bible is the only authorized spokesman for God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And in it, we discover how God expects us to act and live. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The second issue is autonomy. We'd like to think that we are our own highest authority, just like we would like to believe that we are autonomous individuals. We'd like to believe that no one, including God, has the right to tell me what to do with my body and my life. No one can tell me anything about my sexuality. No one can tell me that anything I do is wrong. Church, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are a human created in the image of God and that your your creator loves you and wants what's best for you. So your creator gives you commands on how you should live. And Jesus came to redeem us He bought us, and we are His. We are not autonomous individuals, but we are subjects to God, our Creator and Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. So this brings us to our passage this morning, and it might seem odd to choose a passage, passage from Genesis 1 and 2 about, to talk about gender and sexuality, which on its face may not have a whole lot to say about them. But at the end of the morning, 
hopefully you'll see that this passage is the center for the biblical understanding of gender and sexuality, and so much more. So Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. First thing to notice, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, God is not talking about a singular man here. He's talking about making humanity in his image so they will have dominion. And these humans will be made in the image and likeness of God. We get a hint here of God's plurality when he says, let us make man in our image. So one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God is the fact that there is, in some sense, plurality within humanity. And we get a picture of what this plurality looks like in the next verse, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Here we are told the wonderful truth that God made humans in his image and likeness. What does that mean? It means so many wonderful things, but for our purposes this morning, I want to focus on two of them. Notice that in the previous verse, that being created in God's image is connected to having dominion over the world that God has made. It gets even more interesting when you look into the Hebrew word here for image. It's the same word used later in the Bible for statues of pagan gods. Why do people make images of gods? Why do people make idols? It's because when you make an idol, what you're saying is, we worship this god, and this god has dominion over our lives and over this area. The image represents the lesser God. So when God created humanity, he made us in his image because our job is to represent God on the earth and to exercise authority over what he has made on his behalf. And this is made clear in the next verse, in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wants humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over it because we represent God. We have been given authority from God that nothing else in creation has been given. God wants the earth to be filled with his image bearers to be filled with his representatives, to be filled with people so that everyone can see that God is the God of the earth. And the way that we are to do this is through procreation, which is closely tied to how God made us male and female. I don't know if the American church is more deficient in any doctrine more than this one, the doctrine of the image of God. If we truly grasp what these verses are saying, it would transform our churches, our culture, and it would solve so many of the issues 
that are facing our world today. If we all truly believed that every person was made in the image of God and all that that entailed, there would be no racism. You cannot hate someone who looks different than you when you recognize that they bear the image of God just as much as you. There would be no sexism. A man could not look down on a woman if he recognized she is equally made in the image of God like he is. There would be no abortion. It would be impossible to murder a baby in the womb if you recognize that that little life is an image bearer just like you. There would be no war. You could not bomb people and take their land if you recognize that they are equal with you before God because they too are his image bearers. And this doctrine of the image of God is the key to understanding the questions related to gender. So question number one, what does the Bible say about gender? Very often our big questions are answered with lies. And so lie number one that the world would have you believe, the Bible doesn't address the current issues related to gender identity. A lot of people will say that the issues related to transgender theory and non-binary gender expression, that all this modern theory is not even addressed in the Bible. So therefore, we can't go to the Bible for our answers. The Bible's an ancient book, they'd say, out of touch with modern culture and science. So we can't trust it for what it says about modern questions about gender. I'd say that if you truly believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, then it will speak to all issues in all places and at all times. But if you don't believe that the Bible is the true authoritative word of God, then let's just be honest, you can believe whatever you want. Like I said at the beginning, the questions behind the questions are related to authority and autonomy. Is the Bible your highest authority or not? And church, let me just tell you that that question needs to be answered every single day of your life. Is the Bible my highest authority or not? About any question. Because I have news for you. If the Bible is your highest authority, and if you really believe that it is the authoritative word of God, if you believe that, then the question, what does the Bible say about gender, is not hard to answer at all. It's not hard to answer at all. Because the Bible is clear. Don't believe the lie that you need some advanced degree to answer this question, or you need to be a medical expert, or you need um, training on the original languages, or you need some advanced degree. You don't. The Bible is so clear on this issue that any Christian can sit down and open their Bible and understand it. The answer to the question about gender is found in Genesis 1. And what the Bible says in Genesis 1.26 is that God created humans, male and female, in his image. And the two genders separately image God. But when they come together in marriage, that is a unique aspect of displaying the image of God. You don't need to be married to be an image bearer. But if God has called you into marriage, that is one unique opportunity we have to display the image of God to the world. 
that our God is a community of persons, that the persons of the Trinity are equally God and equally worthy of worship, and yet have different roles in how they function in the history of salvation. You see, your gender is not just about you. It points to something bigger than you. And this is why the enemy is attacking gender so much these days. Because defacing the two genders that God created good is defacing the way humans display the image of God in the world. It's like Satan taking spray paint and spraying graffiti on the images that display the image of God and his authority over all the earth. Another passage that speaks to the idea that there are two genders and that we should not try to blur the distinctions between them is Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. We should not try to present ourselves as the opposite gender by the way we dress. Because what we are doing is saying that distinctions don't matter. The way that God made us is not determinative. I get to decide. It's about my autonomy. Again, one of the reasons this is so harmful is it distorts the creational distinctions that God made good in the beginning. If you read Genesis 1, what you see is that a major part of God's creative project is that God is making divisions and distinctions. In Genesis 1, the word separated is used five times. God separates light from darkness, the upper waters from the lower waters, day from night. He distinguishes land from sea, land animals from birds, from swarming insects, from fish. He distinguishes between plants and fruit trees. And finally, he creates humanity, who are distinct from all other animals. And within humanity... He makes a distinction between male and female. Now, certainly there were male and female animals before God created humanity because we're told that God gave them the task of being fruitful and multiply. But Genesis saves the discussion for gender for day six when he created humanity because that is a special part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Read Genesis 1 and you will see that Creation is all about God creating divisions and distinctions. Why does he do that? What do you call a world that is divided into different kinds of things and where distinctions are made between kinds? You call that order. What God is doing is he is ordering his creation. God divides things. God distinguishes between things. And yes, God institutes hierarchies. Man has power over the animals. Animals don't have power over man. In fact, when these divisions and distinctions are reversed, what you see is chaos. Think about the fall. You see an animal, the serpent, exercising power over man. Think about the flood. The land and the sea literally come together. The sky opens up and releases its water. Water comes up from the deep, and all the diverse animals are gathered into one place. 
When we lose the creational patterns of divisions and distinctions, we lose order and chaos reigns on the earth. And when we deny the very good distinction between male and female that God instituted in the beginning, chaos inevitably follows. People don't blur the lines today between male and female because it's good. They blur the lines today because they are operating under the assumption that they are autonomous and that distinctions shouldn't exist and that there is no creator who made the world as it should be. And you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament have to say? The New Testament always assumes that there are only two genders, male and female. And some today might say, oh, well, you're just talking about biological sex. No, I'm talking about gender. Let me just say that the Bible does not distinguish between sex and gender. How you're born, that's your gender. The Bible makes no distinction and doesn't hint anywhere that you can switch and that my gender is only a matter of my feelings and my decisions. Your feelings are not inspired. All your decisions are not inspired. I'm aware that this is not very popular today, but it's biblical. And I understand the temptation to be one of those people who ignores or even rejects what the Bible says. It'd be a lot more comfortable and a lot more popular. But we want to affirm all that the Bible teaches. And you know what? I trust that God knows what's best and that he actually has our best interest in mind. God's commands are not arbitrary. God gave us commands that are tied to blessings, that in the obedience, the result is blessing. This is the way that God designed the universe to work. I don't think you have to look too far at people who are living outside of God's design in order to find chaos, confusion, sin, and despair. So Village Church, as one of your pastors and speaking for the pastors, we ask you to trust us, to trust the Bible, and to trust that God's design will result in the greatest joy and God's greatest glory. So truth number one that answers the lie is this. The Bible clearly states that God created humans as male and female in his image, in two genders, and it is sinful to attempt to blur or transgress those norms. The creational pattern for gender in Genesis shows that gender is a gift from God and is not subject to human altering or innovation. Now that's the answer to the question, what does the Bible say about gender? Question number two that I want to address this morning. What does the Bible say about sexuality? And again, this question is answered by a lie. Lie number two is that the Bible affirms any loving sexual union between two consenting adults. Passages in the Bible which seem to condemn homosexuality have been historically misinterpreted. 
Again, in order to answer the question about sexuality, we need to look at the creational pattern. And God's creational pattern is that sex should only occur within marriage, which is one man and one woman in one lifelong covenantal union. But you might ask me, well, Matt, isn't there a lot of polygamy in the Bible? Isn't there a lot of sex outside of marriage in the Bible? And I'd say, yes, there is. There's also adultery and fornication and rape and murder in the Bible. The question shouldn't be, are these things in the Bible? The question should be, does the Bible condone these things? When you read about something in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is the Bible merely telling us what happened, or is it showing us positively how we should live? Take any case of sex outside of marriage in the Bible, and you will see that it led to pain, hardship, and even sometimes death. I'll give you a list. David's adultery with Bathsheba, Shechem's rape of Dinah, Amnon's rape of Tamar, Every single one of those led to death. What about polygamy? Again, is it prescriptive or descriptive? Every time polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, there is strife, hardship, and alienation between the wives and the children. Think about Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Think about Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Think about David's wives and how his children killed each other. Think of how Solomon's hundreds of wives led his heart astray to worship other gods. These are descriptive passages that show the dangers of taking multiple wives. It should also be noted that you won't find one example of polygamy in the New Testament. Not one. Polygamy was certainly accepted in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, and yet both Jesus and Paul upheld the creational pattern as the standard where sexuality should be expressed. Look at Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh, well, therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul says something similar when discussing sexual immorality. He cites the creational pattern as the model that all Christians should uphold and how the creational pattern restrains sexual behavior. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Because sex involving, involves the two becoming one, this is reserved for marriage in the creational pattern, Paul says. Notice that Paul, like Jesus, cites Genesis in making his point. He also says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't sin against your body. Don't sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit with sexual immorality. And then Paul blows up any idea that we would have about bodily autonomy. The, the idea that, well, it's my life, it's my body, I do what I want. No, you are not your own. You are not your own. Your body is not yours. Your life is not yours. You were bought at a price. God created you. God redeemed you through the blood of Jesus. He owns you now. So glorify God with your body and flee sexual immorality. Flee fornication. Flee prostitution. Flee adultery. Flee pornography. Flee homosexuality. Because these sins are committed against the temple of the Holy Spirit. Transgenderism is sinning against the temple of the Holy Spirit. These sins mar the image of God in us, so we are told to flee from them. And yes, the Bible does condemn homosexuality. I've heard people call certain passages in the Bible clobber passages, as if we are clobbering people by humbly sharing biblical truth with them. This is their way of trying to shame Christians into not sharing what the Bible says. Church, we do not need to be ashamed of what the Bible says. If they call you names, they call you names. But we don't need to be afraid. A lot of people will say that, oh, what it says in the Old Testament about homosexuality, that doesn't apply to me today. I'd say, yes, it does. But you know what? We don't even need the Old Testament for this one. We can just go right to the New Testament. The Bible is clear on this issue. Romans 1, starting in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice that Paul here says that they gave up what was natural. This again is Paul's way of referring back to the creational pattern. I also want you to see that Paul says these acts will actually cause people harm. God knows what is best morally, and God knows what is best physically. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, God's commands are not arbitrary. God knows the way that sex works best. 
And this is an example where obedience is tied to blessing. And disobedience is tied to harm. Sexually operating outside of God's design in any form will cause you harm. This is the way that God designed the universe to work. And here specifically, the way sexuality is supposed to work. Same-sex relationships transgress the sex distinctions that God made in the beginning. They transgress the divisions and distinctions that God created good back in Genesis 1. According to the Bible, there are only two God-honoring modes for sexuality. Celibate singleness or monogamous marriage. Celibate singleness or monogamous marriage. I want you to imagine something for a minute. Imagine that every person on earth, every one of them, followed God's design for sexuality. Imagine if every person on earth perfectly lived out one of these two modes. I'll tell you what that would look like. There'd be no rape. There'd be no sexual assault. There'd be no sex trafficking. There'd be no abortion. There'd be no pornography. There would be no fornication, and there would be no adultery. And in so many ways, our world would be better than it is today. And so much of the moral decay in our world would disappear, and so much pain and suffering would end. Now imagine that every single person in the world followed the persistent cultural sexual ethic that we see pushed today. The sexual ethic that says, do what feels good, live without boundaries, do whatever you want, don't let people restrain your sexuality. I think it's pretty obvious that the biblical sexual ethic actually leads to more joy, not less. And the biblical sexual ethic leads to more good, not less. So what is the truthful answer to this question? Truth number two. The Bible states that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. The Bible defines marriage as a lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman. Both Paul and Jesus appealed to creation, the creation design for marriage in Genesis, as the only union where sex can occur, and that marriage is not subject to human altering or innovation. Governments did not create marriage. They have no right to define or redefine it. Governments did not create gender. They have no right to define or redefine it. Gender, marriage, sexuality, these things predate written history. They predate governments. They predate civilizations. They predate writing and the city-state. They're older than the wheel and agriculture. But we think in the last 50 years, that we get to redefine things that have existed since the human population was two. 
We don't get to define these things. God does. We don't get to define who we are. God does. Your gender is not your identity. Your sexuality is not your identity. You want to know who you are? You're an image bearer of God. You are a blood-bought image bearer of God by the blood of Jesus. That's who you are. Your identity is not found in something within you. Your identity is found outside of you in what God says about you. And what God says about you is more important and more true than what you say about you. And what God says is that you are his image bearer. One last passage that I wanted to share with you on sexuality is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In your Bibles, maybe you have a text note that indicates after the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. In the ASV, there's a note that says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. Both parties are sinning in this act, Paul says. The Bible is clear on this issue. And do you know why the church cannot be silent on this issue? It's because of what Paul says at the beginning of the passage. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Unless they repent and turn to Jesus, village church, all sinners will perish. And if we are silent about sin, homosexual or heterosexual, pornography, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of it. If we are silent about that, then we are saying to a group of sinners, go to hell. And if that's you in here this morning, you need to repent and turn to Jesus. All sexual sin needs to be repented of. And I'd be naive to think that we don't have sin inside the church today. Even inside this church today. We can't just focus on the sexual sins that are easy to condemn because we don't struggle with them. Church, we need to confess, repent, and ask Jesus for forgiveness of the sexual sins we keep secret and do struggle with. We need to have credibility and victory in these areas. Because when we say that what the Bible says, we need to make sure that we don't have a log in our own eye that we need to remove, like Jesus said. There's a lot more that could be said on these issues. And if you're interested and want to hear more, if you want to go more in depth, if you have questions that you would like me 
to answer, or if you would just like to throw things. You can do all of that at our Apprentice Academy on Tuesday, December 5th at 7.30 p.m. right here in the Hub, where I will be teaching for 60 minutes on gender, marriage, and sexuality with 30 minutes of Q&A time. You're all invited, and you're welcome to bring your friends. And you might say, okay, Matt, I see what the Bible says. But there's so much pressure from the culture, the government, maybe even from your job to toe the line of the cultural narrative. And let me just say, I get that. I understand that. I understand the fear and the pressure that you're feeling. Because I'm a public school teacher, and this sermon's going to be on the internet. So I'm right there with you. But that doesn't mean that we're silent. We can't lie about what the Bible says, because people need to hear the truth so that they can be confronted with the reality of their sin and by God's grace, repent and find salvation in Jesus. And you might also say, but Matt, I have a boss. I have a coworker. I have a neighbor. I have a friend. I have a family member. I have a child who is struggling with these issues related to gender and sexuality. What should I do? What should I do? Well, first, I'll tell you exactly what you don't do. You don't act like these people. We're not down with these people. We're not down with yelling at people in an unloving way and saying, God hates you. That's not what you should say, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And it was because of his great love for us that Christ died for us. So what should we do? How should we treat these people? First off, a couple of practical ideas. You should treat them with sensitivity, but not at the expense of clarity. We can be sensitive to people's experiences and struggles, and yet still be clear about what the Bible says. You should treat them with humility, but not at the expense of certainty. We can be humble towards these people while still being certain about what the Bible says. You should treat them with grace, but not at the expense of truth. Time and again, Jesus showed grace to people without compromising truth. And likewise, we can do the same. And finally, I think the best way that we can treat them is we should love them. We should love them. We should love them the way that the Bible defines love. 
Because let me just tell you, love doesn't mean affirming every single life choice that a person made. Love doesn't mean affirm the way you feel. Church, celebrating sin is not loving. Condoning sin is not loving. Affirming someone as they continue down a destructive path is not loving. And as Christians, we need to stop taking our definition of love from the world. Your faithfulness to God is not determined by what other people say. Your faithfulness to God is determined by the Word of God. Your feelings and desires are not inspired. The Word of God is the only authorized spokesman for God. So how does the Bible define love? That's a good question. It does so in a number of places. One is 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what love looks like. When we didn't love God, He loved us and He did something about it. He sent His Son Jesus to be the propitiation, that's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus dying for sinners. And that's number one. Another place we see love defined in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. How should we love these people? Love is patient. We should be patient with them. Love is kind. We should be kind to them. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Don't be arrogant, proud, or rude to them. It does not insist on its own way. This doesn't mean that you don't say that you are right in what the Bible teaches. It means that you don't share with them for your own sake, but you do it for their sake. It is not irritable or resentful. Don't do these things. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Loving someone means you don't rejoice in their wrongdoing, but you rejoice in the truth of the gospel and the truth about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. We cannot love people by lying to them. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Be patient with these people. Bear with them. Spend time with them. Invite them into your home. Show hospitality to them. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. And walk with them for the long haul. That is what is loving, and that is how we should treat them. It also says we should hope all things for them. And the last part of 1 Corinthians 6 that we read this morning gives us tremendous hope. Paul says, and once were some of you. I think a lot of Christians these days don't speak out on these issues because they feel like they lack credibility. They might say, well, I can't speak out on sexual sin because I know my past. And so do these other people. They'd call me a hypocrite. 
Your past sexual sins don't make the Bible less true or credible. The Bible would be true whether you believed it or not. And it'd be true whether you followed it perfectly or not. Once were some of you, Paul says. And if you're in here and struggling with these gender and sexuality issues, know that you are in a room with others who have as well. But listen to Paul's words. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Church, there is no sexual sin that you can commit that puts you beyond God's saving power. Jesus Christ died on the cross specifically to save sinners like you and me and everyone in here. You are not in too deep for God to not reach down and rescue you. God is in the business of saving sinners. And it is in that hope that we can rejoice. And that brings us to our good news statement this morning. We want to share good news with you every morning because we believe that God is altogether good, that the gospel is altogether good. So here's our good news. God created us as gendered and sexual beings so that we could reflect His glory when we follow His creational design. So church, I pray that that's good news for you this morning. I pray that you find clarity and comfort and hope in what we discussed this morning. I pray that you would confess what you need to confess to the Lord. And I pray that you would show up if you want to hear more to our Apprentice Academy on December 5th, when we'll talk more about these issues and about how they reflect God's glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in your son. Thank you that he came to save sinners like us. Thank you that we can rejoice that you know what's best, that you gave us your word to show us how to live. Lord, I pray as we reflect on these issues, as we think about what it means for us in our families, in our work, in our homes, that you would give us that hope, that you would give us a measure of your spirit and a confidence and a clarity and a boldness to follow your design for gender and sexuality. I pray that you would be with these people as we go away from here, that we would have a boldness to be able to share with those who need to hear the truth revealed in your word, and that through our witness, we would be able to share the wonderful gospel that you came to save sinners like us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for this time. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.